Hey everybody, it's time to dive into some content. So we are going to cover topic one from period one, which looks at Native American societies prior to the arrival of Europeans. And the little subtitle of this video and podcast is why you should probably think Native Americans, you should thank Native Americans the next time you're at Quick Trip. So let's dive into this. Uh, what you are in the middle of right now, you're going through this Moodle course, and I put some resources together at the beginning of this unit. You will see some links to some guided notes. So what I'm hoping you will have done prior to watching this video or listening to the podcast is that you will have opened those notes up, either you've printed them off or you have them as a Google Doc, and that you're prepared to take notes on that document as you listen to this. So you could um, you could do it by hand if you prefer that. You could do it in Google Docs. Or if you're somebody who just likes to soak it up and absorb it and just listen to it, you can do it that way too. But I did want to make these notes available for you if you like to review things prior to taking tests on things. So just a reminder, access those. They're in the links above this video. All right. The other thing you'll notice when you open those documents is that there are some key questions laid out. And that's how I am going to structure these review videos and these review podcasts is so uh, I'll, I'll show you the question, I'll read the question, and then I'll dive into answering that question. So the first one you're seeing in this topic one, Native American societies, is the big question dealing with just how advanced overall, how advanced were Native American societies prior to the arrival of Europeans? How advanced were they compared to European societies and European civilizations and African and Asian societies and civilizations? So we've got kind of a two-column note-taking system here. One column, you can provide some details and evidence that, that demonstrates that Native Americans were highly advanced, just as advanced uh, as Europeans, or another column where we, you might look at the other side of that um, topic. Traditionally, traditionally speaking, Native American societies have been viewed as not as advanced, and they're often portrayed as in this in this savage imagery, I, I'm displaying an image right here of two Native Americans attacking a white European woman. And this image really encapsulate this view of Native Americans as bloodthirsty savages, that they were warlike, they were primitive, they were cannibalistic. And all of that, if you have that mindset of Native Americans, if you believe them to be bloodthirsty savage savages, then that that justifies any conquest that might take place, so let's say, during the 1500s by the Spanish, 1600s by the British. You know, so this bloodthirsty savage viewpoint had a purpose. It helped to, it helped to justify the conquest that was coming. And, and when you see the myth today, it helps to ex post facto, it helps to justify the conquests that we know took place in the past. The other way Native Americans are often depicted traditionally is if they're not bloodthirsty savages, they're, they're still savage, but they're like noble savages. They're like the ultimate hippies. They're spiritual. They're ecological. They're in touch with nature. But they're still, they're like, they're primitive. They're unchanging. They're, they're incapable of stopping any advanced society coming in and conquering them. So both of these views, while one might see more harsh and negative than the other, they, they still prop up a myth that the Native Americans like had it coming. They, 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 uh, their conquest was inevitable. Okay, And these 
traditional views are built on a long chain of historiography, uh, a long chain of historical um, publications. And we're, I'm, I'm going to show you some quotes of some historians who definitely helped to prop up this traditional view of Native Americans as primitive, as barbaric, as savage, as not very advanced. And so the first quote we're looking at here comes from George Bancroft. He's, he's kind of the first big U.S. historian. So he is writing um, volumes about U.S. history in the mid-1800s, and he will start his early U.S. history books with chapters about Native Americans in which he will describe them as feeble barbarians, destitute of commerce and of political connection. He just flat out uses the word barbarians there. Zooming ahead about 100 years, Samuel Eliot Morrison writing in the mid-1900s, this guy uh, was a prize-winning historian who would be most famous for writing a lengthy biography of Christopher Columbus, would describe Native Americans as living short and brutish lives void of hope for any future. Not a very positive uh, view there. So those are, those are a little bit older, but this, this thinking is still pervasive in the United States. Here's the textbook, American History, 13th edition. Uh, this was a textbook that was given to me when I was first started teaching APUS history 12 years ago. I didn't, we didn't adopt it, but it was made available and many teachers still use it. And it has this sentence that Amer the Americas, North and South America, before Columbus, was empty of mankind and its works. No civilization existed. So no civilization, meaning they were not advanced societies. That's a American History Survey. This is Ameri the American Pageant. This is the textbook that I used when I first started teaching at Mankato West High School. Um, it's the single most popular AP US history textbook on the market today. And this is a sentence from the 14th edition. So this is the textbook that was still being published in 2012, 2013, 2014. And it uh, has this sentence, that Native Americans had neither the desire nor the means to alter the face of the land or manipulate nature aggressively. The land did not feel the hand of the Native American. They were too thinly spread out and there were vast areas that were untouched. That's the American pageant. Many students still use this textbook today. Those are, those are kind of traditional views. So when you're looking at the column in your notes about you know, how advanced were Native Americans, on that column where you're, you're trying to think of bullet points for what did people say when they would argue that they were not very advanced, the traditional things were, they were their commerce was, was not as fully developed as maybe the trade systems you would see in Eurasia. Uh, their political societies were maybe not as complex as you would see in Eurasia. They were, as you saw in some of those quotes, they were not as populated as civilizations in Europe, Asia, Africa. They did not manipulate nature to the same extent as, you, as places, uh, other places on earth. They were violent. There's the bloodthirsty savage. And usually the bloodthirsty savage uh, narrative is, is usually supported by stories about the Aztec and their sacrifices, where they would sacrifice several hundred people a year to the sun god and march these these uh, people that they were prisoners of war, they were people captured in war, they'd march them to the top of the temple and rip their heart out while they were still alive. And, um, you know, stories like this help prop up this, this narrative that they were bloodthirsty, savage, violent people. Um, another bullet point often offered in this narrative is that they didn't domesticate the animals like the European, Asian, Africans did. The Eurasians had the, the horse, they had the cow, they had the pig. And what was domesticated over in the Americas? The llama. There was no 
Uh, Europeans, when they came over, were, were puzzled as to why Native American societies had not invented the wheel. Another question to ask, why didn't Native Americans go on these ocean-going voyages of discovery? Why was it the Europeans who went on these ocean-going Is that an element of being an advanced society? Okay, and then lastly, the, you know, the other part of this narrative is that who conquered who here? So the Europeans conquered the Native Americans, therefore the Native Americans are not as complex of a society, not as advanced of a civilization. If they were so advanced, how come they couldn't stop the conquest? So those are usually the things you're going to hear on that side. But, uh, and the other, you know, the other thing to think about um, is traditionally speaking, when you are, when you are trying to diagnose a civilization, you're looking at a society and you're like, is this a complex civilization or not? Usually you're going to look for, and these are things that usually people look for about the ancient Egyptians Sumer, ancient China, uh, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. We're looking at how advanced was their agriculture, how advanced was their specialization of labor. Did they have hierarchies or social stratification? Did they occupy and defend strategic geographies? Did they have large urban areas, advanced government and religion? Did they have their uh, citizens build large public structures? Did they engage in extensive trade? Did they have a writing system? And usually when you find these things and when you find a multitude of these things, you don't have to find every single item on here, but when you find a multitude of these things, usually you can diagnose a society and as a complex civilization. And we see a lot of these things in ancient Egypt, in ancient Greece, in the Roman Empire. But the thing is, we also see all of these same things in Native American societies. So now let's switch to the other side of the coin and let's look at like how let's so the traditional view is that Native Americans were not so advanced. Now let's bring in some modern scholarship where the kind of consensus is for, for historians today. Some of these textbooks are still updating their research, but the consensus among historians today is that Native Americans were highly complex civilizations. And when you think about the components of a complex civilization, you're going to find all of these elements in Native American societies. For the first one, agriculture the development of agriculture and the arrival of food surpluses, we have to remind ourselves that it is Native Americans who domesticate perhaps the most important crop on the face of the earth today. They called it maize. We call it corn. It had to be genetically modified. Uh, if it needed to travel north or south, it had to be genetically modified so that it could adapt to the number of frost-free days in any given area. But it, we know that it is a very calorie-dense crop. We know that if you go on a diet, you probably are going to cut corn out of your food consumption. It is it is very calorie dense. That's a good thing, though. Back then, that means it provides more calories. You can have a, support a larger uh, population. Native Americans in central Mexico that domesticated that crop. They also domesticated beans and squash along with it. And those three things put together, corn, beans, and squash, all three of those things planted together and consumed together are often nicknamed the three sisters. And so when we say Native Americans practice three sisters agriculture, we mean they planted corn, beans, and squash together. They all complemented each other. In the ground, uh, the squash would cover cover the ground, and so you didn't have to worry about weeding the field as much. The beans would be able to use the corn stock to grow up. And the corn, the beans, the squash, when consumed together, gave you a balanced diet. They have carbohydrates, they have fat, and when consumed together, the enzymes, when they break down, they actually produce a protein. So you have your three macronutrients that you need, carbohydrates, fat, and protein, all right there. 
So, so Native Americans had a very highly developed diet. You're looking at a painting. In this video, you're, you're seeing a painting here on the left side of the screen. Um, this is a painting done by John White. He's a, he comes over uh, on an English voyage and he travels the east coast of what today would be North America. And he, uh, he's an artist, so he paints what he sees. And in the east coast of North Carolina, um, he paints some Native Americans. And what you should notice in this detail of this painting is look at the look at the muscle on this Native American. This is a Native American that that John White was actually he was impressed by this Native American. He was impressed by how how muscular this this Native American looked way healthier than anything John White was used to seeing back in Europe. So Native Americans actually had a better diet than than Europeans did in the 1400s and the 1500s when these Europeans are coming over. Another crop that's really important is potatoes. It was domesticated in South America. The Inca are famous uh, for their potato terrace fields. And if you think about the corn and the potato, those are two crops that are, that are very calorie dense and they provide a lot of sustenance to the world today. These, all, these places also would have had specialization of labor. So you're looking at an image of Cahokia here on the left side of the screen. Uh, we know Cahokia just by looking at this artist depiction of it, and this is based off of all the archaeological evidence they've they've dug. Uh, Cahokia today is just outside of St. Louis, so it's where the Missouri River converges with the Mississippi River. Uh, it was the site of 40,000 people lived there, uh, you know, about a thousand years ago, and there would have been people engaged in farming. There would have been soldiers defending this place. There would have been priests who would have lived atop these giant earthen temples that you see. There would have been monarchs who would have been buried in these earthen mounds. Uh, there would have been carpenters building these fence works, defensive structures you see. There would have been merchants. So we know that it was very hierarchical. Uh, we, the, each layer of these earthen mounds, by the way, uh, when they dig into them, they find each layer often has a, a like king buried with all of his worldly possessions along with anybody that was affiliated, like all of his lovers, uh, would be murdered and killed uh, and then buried with him so that he had these people in the afterlife. So that's a that's a pretty good evidence that they had a very hierarchical society. They had advanced government, they had advanced religion, all of that architect or excuse me, that archaeological evidence points to that. Um, large public structures, you get excited about the pyramids in Egypt. Uh, you know, there's some pretty amazing public structures that were built. Those Cahokia mounds, we were looking at uh, depictions of those, they're still there. 800,000 cubic yards of dirt needed to build the biggest mound in Cahokia. 800,000 cubic yards. The back end of a truck is one cubic yard of dirt. 800,000 cubic yards of dirt. Remember, built without horses, mules, cattle, no beasts of burden. No beasts of burden. So that gives you a sense for just how complex these societies are, that they could compel people to build these things. What's more famous usually are like the Aztec temples and then the Inca, their massive infrastructure, their roads, their walls, their terraces. Uh, their masonry is amazing. You know, a lot of the Machu Picchu was found in the 1900s and it had been sitting there for hundreds of years and it was still like fully intact. It hadn't like crumbled and fallen apart. All the, the masonry and the walls was still well put together. So um, the Europeans had an advantage. The animals over there... You know, there's 72 big, large animal species in Eurasia, and they managed to domesticate about 23 of them. Um, or excuse me, 13. They only, they only domesticated 13 of 72. Well, Eurasians had 72 to work with at the outset. 
the Americans only had like North and South America, Native Americans only had about 23 large mammal species to experiment with. For an animal to become domesticated, it often needs to meet a lot of criteria. And the biggest one that a lot of animals don't meet is that they do well, or they're not willing to breed in captivity. Like that's a big problem uh, zoo keepers have with pandas today is they're not very, not very willing to breed in captivity. Uh, so there's like only 13 species of animals in Europe that meet that criteria, criteria, and there's not many in the Americas. So you can't fault them for not having a horse or cow or donkey. Uh, they didn't have many beasts of burden because the animals that they had, the large animal species, just were not, um, you know, not going to jump through the hoops to be domesticated. Okay. Did they have large cities? Heck yes, they had large cities. Cahokia had 40,000 people living in it. The Inca had a city of 115,000 people in the year 1000 AD. Paris, uh, that was Paris's population in about 1500 when Columbus came over. The Aztec Empire comprised 25 million people. Their population density was twice that of China or India. Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire, housed about 200,000 people in the middle of a lake. So if you think Venice is impressive today, uh, it would have been amazing to see Tenochtitlan at the height of its power. Their trade network was very advanced. So Cahokia, when we do archaeological digs there, uh, they find copper from the Great Lakes. They find obsidian from the Rocky Mountains. They find seashells from the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. So it's very obvious that these places uh, traded far and wide. Another piece of evidence for how advanced Native American societies are and were is <clears throat> look at the diplomacy that was done between Europeans and the, Amer and the Native Americans. And almost all of the diplomacy was done on Native American terms. So when Europeans came over and they negotiated with Native Americans, they didn't force European diplomacy styles onto Native Americans. They adopted Native American diplom diplomatic culture. So they engaged in calumet smoking before and after a negotiation. We call this like smoking the peace pipe today. It was an Algonquin tradition. It was a tradition to clear the air before you engaged in an argument or a debate. They engaged in wampum exchanges. These are the um, very complex like beaded um, braids you might see. They're, they're pictured here on the lower left. But what those did is you had to often lay down a, a, a string of wampum for every little element of, of agreement you reached in your negotiation. And this would often show, it, in order to make one of these things, it took an intense amount of time and effort. And so when you're laying down all this stuff, when you're doing all of this gift giving, it's showing that you have an immense amount of community support for the agreement. Diplomacy uh, for Native Americans always occurred right, right out in the open, so totally public. In, in European uh, societies, diplomacy always happened in private. Um, this goes way out. This goes far beyond the 1500s. George Washington, when he becomes our, our nation's first president, um, his first trip to the Senate, you know, what's the big issue on his mind? What does he need help with? It's with negotiating a treaty with South, Southern Indian tribes, with the Creek. And, and the Creek are actually invited to New York City, the capital at that time. And they draw one of the biggest crowds in New York City's history up until that moment in time, a crowd just as big as George Washington's inauguration. And they entertain, the New York City people entertain these Native Americans for weeks with elaborate ceremonies. So they were thought of as highly, like, worthy of honor, worthy of being uh, welcomed into your city and engaged in diplomacy on their terms. Okay, another piece of evidence that they were advanced. So when we go back to the notes then, what should the bullet points be for evidence of how advanced Native Americans were? Well, 
They had agriculture. They domesticated corn and potatoes, two of the most important crops on the Earth's surface today. We know they had dense settlements. We know from Cahokia they engaged in extensive trade. They were able to build these amazing structures without any help from horses, donkeys, or cattle. No beasts of burden to help with these amazing uh, large public structures. They manipulated nature. The, the American pageant textbook said nature did not feel their hand. They manipulated it almost too aggressively. The reason Cahokia collapsed was because they cut down too many trees. The reason the Mayan civilization collapsed is that they were too aggressive in, in their area. They, they depleted the soil. They depleted the soil so much that they couldn't produce the crops that they needed to, to sustain their populations, and therefore they became weakened and were subject to attack, right? They manipulated nature almost too aggressively. They, they didn't read the Lorax, uh, the Dr. Seuss book, so to speak. They cut down too many trees. They're not as, they were violent, but they're not as violent as Europeans at the time. The Aztec, yeah, oh my gosh, they're ripping out the hearts of people a couple hundred a year, but the English are executing twice as many people as the Aztec are around this same time period. They don't have the wheel, but they also don't need the wheal. If you take a look at Incan Mountains and you're, and you're thinking about you know harvesting potatoes in Incan Mountains, you probably don't even want a wheel there. That's just going to allow everything to um, you know fall down the, the mountainside. And they don't have beasts of burden. Who's going to, if you're going to create a cart, who's going to pull the cart if you don't have a horse or a cow or a donkey? Um, they don't go on ocean voyages of discovery, but they also don't need to. As you're going to find out, one of the reasons why it's the Europeans out there exploring is because they're so far behind. Uh, they're so poor compared to everybody else. So they don't really have a strong need to do that. Why were they conquered? Was it because the Europeans were so advanced? Well, most of the conquest, especially the Inca and the Aztec, two of the biggest civilizations, has to do with being brought down by disease first, being weakened by disease, and then the Europeans will often ally with the enemies of the Native Americans, so it was almost like civil wars. So often um, Cortes gets credit for conquering the Aztec, but he, we forget that, that smallpox wiped out like half of Tenochtitlan, and then Cortes uh, was able to negotiate alliances with many of the enemies of the Aztec in order to help him conquer the Aztec. Pizarro does the same thing with the Inca. So they're, they're bigger factors in their conquest. The biggest factor of all is disease, but then civil wars play a role there too. And then lastly, diplomacy was always done on their terms. So Steve King is no longer a representative for Northern Iowa. He used to be, uh, and he did not get the Republican. He was a, he is a Republican, but, um, he had a Republican challenger this last year who, who defeated him in the primary. So this was a man who was starting to say things that were so scandalous that the Republican Party said, you know what, we don't want anything to do with Steve King anymore. One of the scandalous things he said recently is, uh, in the last couple of years, he said, what have non-whites ever done for civilization? What have non-whites ever done for civilization? Well, Steve King, you represented Northern Iowa. And if we look at a map of the Corn Belt, that is ground zero for corn production in the United States. So Iowa's economy, Steve King's district of Iowa, their whole economy revolved around a crop that was domesticated by Native Americans. What have non-whites ever done for civilization? Well, they've done just about the most important thing possible for Northern Iowa. Quick Trip I joked about earlier. But if you think about Quick Trip, the gasoline there has corn in it, ethanol. When you walk in and you buy a pop, High fructose corn syrup. You know, how many products in Quick Trip have high fructose corn syrup in them? You think about all of the, 
all of the corn products that are in our food and fuel supplies today wouldn't have that if Native Americans had not domesticated corn. Let's move on to the next question, which has to do with looking at a few different regions of Native Americans and how they adapted to their environment. Typically, when I ask students to envision a Native American, envision a Native American, just pause the video real quick, pause the podcast, sit down with a piece of paper, and just try to draw a Native American. What most people are gonna do is they're probably gonna draw something that looks like this. They're gonna draw a Native American with a feather in their hair, with a bow and arrow, with a teepee. That's, when people imagine Native Americans, this is typically what they imagine. And what I hope over the course of this next few slides, and we're looking at these different regions, is that image of a Native American really only uh, deals with one tiny region of Native Americans during one period of time. Native Americans lived high, way more complex lives than that. When, I, when people are asked to draw a Native American, hardly anybody ever draws a Native American living in an apartment complex. Um, but as we're going to find out, they did hundreds of years ago. So let's first box deals with the Inca. What was their environment like? Well, they, they settled along the Andes mountain chain of South America. So it was very mountainous. Um, they're one of the few empires in world history that stretched north to south. So they had to deal with many different climates. Uh, many different latitudes, and they had to make that work. And they didn't have any beasts of burden to help them with that. How do they adapt to that? Well, their, their empire often would stretch from the coast to the mountaintop. So people along the coast would produce one thing, people along the mountaintop would produce a different thing, and they would trade. So maybe you have fish along the coast, you have potatoes in the mountaintop, you trade fish for potatoes, so people along the coast have fish and potatoes, people in the mountaintops have fish and potatoes, so you have a mixed diet. Um, they would build these terraces into the mountains. You see the image in the lower left there. Um, these highly complex terraces. So they'd, they'd dig into the side of the mountain. They'd fill it with gravel first, then fill it with dirt. So even in the cold mountains, the stone walls of the terraces would absorb heat and, and, and keep it so that the potato field didn't freeze over and that the potato, potatoes were still able to blossom and bloom and grow. Um, and they also compelled labor. So if you were in the Inca Empire, you owed several weeks a year to the Inca Empire. You had to work. You had to build uh, walls. You had to build roads. And these were, these were adaptations that were made. If we shift to the Aztec, the central Mexico, so environment, hot and humid, there is plenty of frost-free days to grow crops. And what happens here? Well, this is where corn comes out of. Now, the Aztec are not the ones that domesticated it, people that live in this region prior to the rise of the Aztec Empire, but this is where corn comes from. So uh, also Three Sisters Agriculture is used here. So they made use of that in their population, as we mentioned earlier, 25 million people in this empire, right? That's, that's a, um, agriculture is going to allow for that food surplus. Shifting into central regions of North America along the Mississippi River Valley, the Cahokians or the Mississippians, the mound builders sometimes they're called. What was their environment like? Well, they had river valleys, so they really didn't need irrigation. How do they adapt to it? The Three Sisters Agriculture, corn, bean, squash, and extensive trade networks. We see stuff coming in archaeological things. We're finding flint from the Knife River in North Dakota. Uh, conch from Mexico, copper from Lake Superior, obsidian from Wyoming, um, galena is is kind of a um, a lead type item you might find in the dirt from Missouri and Illinois. So stuff is coming, you know, down the Ohio River, down the Mississippi River, down the Missouri River, 
from both coastlines uh, to this region, to Cahokia. This is the place earlier that I made the Lorax joke about. Things were going great here, 40,000 people, but then they cut, too, uh, they cut down too many trees upriver. It depleted their soil. Uh, they were not getting the corn crop that they used to. They could not support the population that they used to, and they collapsed about 1,000 years ago, roughly. But that giant mound that's 800,000 cubic yards still stands today, uh, just outside of, of St. Louis. So uh, why is my slide not going backwards here? Um, the next group after... We are moving on to the Northeast. Uh, the next group after the Mississippians is gonna be the Northeast. So um, what were things like for the Northeast? Well, it's uh, a little bit more densely wooded area, a little colder climate than the other groups we've talked about. How do they adapt to it? They still planted agriculture and they still use the three sisters. They, uh, as you've seen in the image over here, they had permanent settlements near their fields. Okay, so those those log houses that you see would, would stand the test of time. Those were things that were not like built and rebuilt every couple months. Um, so they would have one settlement they would use for, for farming. And then they would maybe move, this is what makes them a little different than maybe the Aztec or the Cahokia, they would do some seasonal movement. So they would maybe move to the coast or along a waterway around, along a river or Great Lakes area. Uh, they would move to that region during a certain season when the fishing um, when the fish stock was in high supply. So they would, there would be some seasonal movement patterns. Move to one region to farm, move another region to hunt and fish. And they would also use fire strategically to uh, also improve their hunting prospects. So they, they would maybe um, uh, cut down uh, some trees in an area or start a fire in an area uh, and plant crops in that area, but also use it for hunting purposes. In the Southwest, the Anasazi still farmed. Like when you think about Arizona, New Mexico today, that's a region we're talking about and, and intense farming there. But in order to do it, they had to do some very serious irrigation. They had to build dams, reservoirs, ditches. Their homes, since they didn't have a whole lot of trees, uh, were built with adobe and often into the sides of cliffs. So you're looking at a picture there. And this is the group I mentioned earlier when I said, can you imagine a Native American living in an apartment complex with a couple hundred people? Well, in, in this region, that's what was happening. So that uh, those cliff dwellings were just think of them as giant apartment complexes. They did, they did practice agriculture, so that did support their settlement. Um, we did the Northeast already. Let's go to the Prairie High Plains. Uh, their environment was grasslands. They, they did actually practice some agriculture. It was used until the introduction of the horse, which allowed for a much more nomadic lifestyle. And when the horse arrives, like the Lakota around this area embraced a totally nomadic lifestyle and followed the buffalo for the most part. So very dependent upon that. Uh, the next group to look at would be those in the Northwest. So we're looking at like the Nootka. Uh, this would be today's like British Columbia or Washington, Seattle area. This is the one group that really does not farm because they don't have to. They don't need to. The, the fish supply is so plentiful. The salmon are so plentiful around there uh, that they never really need to embrace agriculture. So they developed some pretty complex religious rituals surrounding the salmon. One of the weird stories uh, was that women were never allowed anywhere near a salmon spawning site if the women were menstruating. So that's a religious ritual from, from this region. 
Okay, so hopefully that gives you, you know, when you think of Native Americans, don't think of every Native American living in a teepee, shooting a bow and arrow, and, uh, you know, running around with a feather in their hair. They're way more complex than that. What you should be thinking of is a, is a Native American farming. And when you think of Native American farmers, don't think of men. The women were the ones who did most of the farming uh, in, in most Native American societies. Men went off to hunt and women would stay home and raise children and often strap them to their chest or their back and go out and farm uh, while they did that. So that's that's what we should remember. Don't picture a Native American in a teepee. Picture a Native American living in, in a giant apartment complex. Okay, the next question it has to do with uh, a map, and we're looking at what were the causes and effects of the of the settlement patterns we're seeing on this map. So when you look at this map, you see some dense settlements in central Mexico, and that's the densest. And then some slightly dense ones along the coast, east and west, and then along the Great Lakes. So what caused that? Well, wherever you're going to see dense settlement, you're going to see agriculture. You're going to see corn production. Uh, you're going to see, if needed in the southwest, irrigation. Three Sisters agriculture, corn, bean, squash. Many groups practice that. The central Mexico Aztec, the southwest, the northeast. You're going to see food surpluses. So the more agriculture you have, the more population you can support along the coasts. Uh, they're going to supplant, you know, their, their diet is going to be enhanced by the fish populations there. Um, and we're going to see sparse populations on this map anywhere where agriculture is difficult, where there's not enough frost-free days to plant corn. Corn requires a certain number of frost-free days. The effects of this. Well, wherever there's higher population, there you're going to see increased complexity of civilization, more complex religions and governments and public structures, and, and often more permanent settlements, sedentary people. Looking out into the future, this dent, the dense settlements are the places where the Spanish are going to settle. The Spanish, they create their colonization system. They're almost like a leech. So they don't want to live anywhere where there isn't Native Americans. They need Native American labor. So they're only going to settle where there is dense settlements of Native Americans. They're going to set up shop in the Caribbean. They're going to set up shop in, in the Mexico region and Central America region. And later we'll talk about South America. But um, that's going to be another effect. And the other effect tragic effect is that smallpox will often be most devastating wherever we see the, the most dense populations, diseases like people being close together. So uh, that, will, that will be the downfall of the Aztecs in central Mexico. It will also wipe out a lot of Native Americans along the east coast of the United States, what, to, what become the United States when the English start settling there. So that's the, that's the review. Um, now, what to do next is you have underneath this review video, you have a practice quiz and you have a graded short answer question. And I want you to do those things next. And I want to remind you why I'm asking you to do what you're doing. Why am I going to make you take a graded short answer question? Well, I said earlier that I, I was really influenced by this book, Make It Stick. And I want to read a few quotes to you from this book. And this book said a simple quiz after reading a text or hearing a lecture produces better learning and remembering than rereading the text or reviewing or re-listening the lecture notes. A quiz is going to help you remember stuff better. And why am I asking you to do a writing quiz, a short answer quiz? Well, elaboration is the process of giving new material meaning by expressing it in your own words. The more you can explain about your new learning, the stronger your, your grasp of it will be. Okay, and lastly, Testing interrupts, forgetting, but the last one, tests that require learners to supply the answer, like an essay or short answer test, appear to be more effective than simple recognition tests like multiple choice or true-false. So I'm going to give you, uh, after any given review video, I'm going to, I'm going to 
create uh, an essay quiz and it's going to randomize the question. So if you take it at the same time as a friend and you sit down shoulder to shoulder with them, you might not get this exact same question. As you just remembered when I went through this video, I went through like three big questions. Um, and the, the short answer question I give you could relate to any one of those. Now you, you can use your notes that you took uh, when you take these short answer questions if you'd like. So this is an example of a short answer question. Explain, you see one specific historical effect, a second specific historical effect, a third specific historical effect that resulted from the spread of maize cultivation. Can you name and explain three effects of corn cultivation? What impact did that have on Native American societies? Can you come up with three distinctive answers for that? Be specific. The more specific your example is, the better chance you are you're going to have of actually getting the points for this. Another possible short answer question, the map we just looked at. A and B are asking for causes of the, the patterns that we're seeing on the map. C is asking for a, an effect of the pattern that we see on the map. And then the last one is explain three different ways geography or the environment shaped the development of Native American communities. You could give me three ways it shaped the development of just Cahokia. You could, for, a, for the Mississippians, excuse me, for A, you could talk about the Mississippians. For B, you could talk about the Anasazi Southwest. And for C, you could talk about the Native Americans in the Northeast. You could do it that way if you wanted, but what's going to matter is specificity. You need to talk about a specific group of Native Americans and how they adjusted to their environment how their environment shaped their society. Okay, so that's it. That's the end of this first topic. I, I, hope, I hope you learned something along the way. I hope we did some myth busting. Remember what we said about why history is important is sometimes historians are the enemy of a nation when a nation is built on some myths. And one of the myths uh, that this nation is somewhat built on is that Native Americans were savage and deserved to be conquered. But hopefully at the end of this, we remember they're very complex uh, civilizations. And as we're gonna find out in future topics, they definitely held their own against Europeans as they were as they were coming over. Okay.